Uh, so our lesson today is uh, going to be from Luke chapter 12. Uh, I'll have the verses on the screen. Uh, but if you want to follow along in your Bible, turn or, or tap to chapter 12, starting in verse 16. Uh, but I'd like to first start uh, with something. There was an article published in The Atlantic magazine, uh, and there, I would like to read for you a few paragraphs. Two 15-year-old girls stood eyeing one another on first acquaintance. Finally, one little girl said, which do you like best, people or things? The other little girl said, things. They were friends at once. I suppose we all go through a phase when like things best, and not only like them, but want to possess them under our hand. The passion for accumulation is upon us. We make collections, we fill our rooms, our walls, our tables, our desks with things, things, things. Many people never pass out of this phase. They never see a flower without wanting to pick it and put it in a vase. They never enjoy a book without wanting to own it, nor a picture without wanting to hang it on their walls. They keep photographs of all of their friends and Kodak albums of all the places they visit. They save all their theater programs and dinner cards. They bring home all their alpenstocks. Those are hiking sticks. Their houses are filled with an undigested mass of things, like the terminal moraine where a glacier dumps at length everything it has picked up during its progress through the lands. And it extends to all our doings. For every event, there is a souvenir. We cannot go to lunch and meet our friends, but we must receive a token to carry away. Even our children cannot have a birthday party and play games and eat good things and be happy. The host must receive gifts from every little guest and provide in return some little remembrance for each to take home. Truly, on all sides we are beset, and we go lumbering along through life like a ship encrusted with barnacles, which can never cut the waves clean and sure and swift until she has been scraped bare again. And there seems little hope for us this side, our last port. So this was an article, again, from the Atlantic magazine that was titled The Tyranny of Things, which is the title of our lesson today. It was published 116 years ago, in May 1906. So just a quick review of the previous lesson from about a month ago. Uh, a man had come to Jesus, uh, hoping that Jesus would handle a dispute that he had with his brother, where his brother had gotten a much larger inheritance than, than he did, and he wanted Jesus to solve this earthly problem. But Jesus didn't want to get involved in things that didn't matter in eternity. And after Jesus tells the man, the man's brother, the crowd that was listening, and us as readers, to guard ourselves from every form of greed, he now tells a parable, which should come up on the screen any moment now. Or I can start reading it. <laughs> there we go. Whoops. Uh, and I'll read it for you. Someone in the crowd, uh, just for review, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man um, produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
So let's, let's take it things verse by verse. So the first part is, uh, then he told them a parable saying, there was a rich man whose land was very fertile and productive. So the first thing we're told is that this man is rich and we know that there's actually nothing wrong with wealth. Um, there's no indication that he came across his wealth in a dishonest manner, uh, that he cheated someone or stole it, he worked for it. But digging deeper, the man wasn't just rich, he was very rich, because the, the Greek word for rich is uh, plusios, and the basic definition is abundance and abounding in wealth. But the Greek words, they're a lot more richer in meaning than our words in English. And this, world, this word has an added meaning of having an earthly abundance of wealth that exceeds something that one would consider the normal type of wealthy. Uh, this man is probably not the type of techie that you would run into at the Seacliff area or maybe Hillsborough or Pacific Heights. So this is probably someone living in Woodside or Atherton, someone who's rich enough to probably have so much space that they don't actually see their neighbors. We're talking about a large plot of land. We're also told that the land was very fertile and productive, and in some translations, it's rendered as very productive or produced plentifully. And the Greek word for this, uh, for very productive, is euphoreo. And that actually translates into an abundance or a huge yield or a great harvest. But euphoreo is actually the root word for our English word, euphoria, uh, which we know is a, a feeling of well-being, of us being in high spirits. Um, and it's that comfort that we have um, when we know that all's well and that we can be worry-free. And that's the goal a lot of us are striving for. We're, we're conditioned for it. We want to be worry-free. We want to make sure that there's food on the table, that the rent or the mortgage or the bills can be paid on time. We want to make sure that our family is cared for and that our kids have what they need to make it to adulthood. We want to reach that stage where we just want to be blissfully comfortable. And this rich man was quite comfortable with what he accumulated. But looking at the next verse, he says, and he began thinking to himself, what shall I do since I have no place large enough in which to store my crops? So do a lot of us have this problem? Probably not. Some of us probably have full refrigerators. I do, and that's obviously a good thing to have. Uh, or you may have a lot of things uh, going on at work uh, while voluminous, at least to keep you gainfully employed. Um, this doesn't seem to be a bad problem to have, not at all. In fact, it's a good problem to have, this type of abundance. You've got You've got, you've, got, uh, you've got things, you've got uh, a land uh, or something that's yielding much, or, you've, or if you're this man, maybe you even have a well that's producing crystal clear water and the supply looks endless. So what do you do? This is what he does. He says, this is what I will do. I will tear down my storehouses and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods there. So this seems like a prudent decision. It's, might remind some of us of Joseph when God told him that there would be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. So it made sense for Joseph to save up for those years of famine. And this guy being wealthy, and while we don't know how old he is, um, he's got to have had some experience or some type of hardship or struggle or setbacks because it's conditions like that that will usually trigger those thoughts of, in us of saving up for that rainy day because we know that day is eventually coming. And so he decides, to build larger storehouses for his grain, to store whatever he has, the things he's bought from the prophets, maybe the field equipment, the tools that he's using, maybe even a few things that he's treated himself to to celebrate the abundance that he has. Because, well, we all do. We all like to treat ourselves on occasion when times are good. And after he's 
thought about and made all of these plans, he says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things stored up, enough for many years. Rest, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And what's interesting is Pastor R. Kent Hughes actually cued in on something very interesting about this verse. He says this may actually be the only place in the Bible where God and the Lord Jesus Christ speak of retirement. Because this is how we picture retirement. You, you've worked hard, hard all your life. You've saved up that 401k or that pension or both, and now it's time to sit down, relax, have a piece of dark chocolate with your latte, look out the window, and just enjoy life. Uh, we think that when we're earning, or earning a decent amount of money that we can afford a few things, and that's as good as it gets. You, you look towards retirement, you think that that will be good, that all of your years of hard work will culminate in this much-needed rest, a rest from our labors and a rest from our troubles. But the reason the Lord Jesus Christ tells this parable is because it's a cautionary tale, because in the next verse, God speaks to the rich man. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own all the things you have prepared? So let's examine the reasons for God's first two words, you fool. Um, why was he a fool? Let's, let's go back and actually look at the previous verses again. And he said, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain my, and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Here's his first problem. He was actually focused on himself. Let me see. I want you to notice that how many eyes there are. I've counted six. He says, what shall I do? I have. I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, with all of these eyes, where is God in anything that this man is doing? In the decisions that he's making, in the things that he's building. But there's more than that. There's also several mys as well. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. Again, where is God in any of this? It was God who allowed his crops to yield plentifully. God blessed him with good business sense because clearly he's got instincts to run a business. But there's no God in his thinking. There's no praise in what he's saying. His mentality and belief is, I did this, I made this, this is mine, I need to take care of what's mine. He's giving glory to himself. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 8.18, but you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The source of all wealth, regardless of how we choose to describe that wealth or whatever form that wealth takes, the source is God, not us, but God. God was blessing this man, and he thought all this came to him by his own strength, his own hands, his own knowledge. Which takes us to a second problem. He was materialistic. So one barn isn't enough, now I've got to build two. One barn is starting to show its age, so I'll tear it down and build a bigger one. Then I'll start on the other barn, now I'll build a third one, and I'll tech it out with all the fancy whatever barn storehouse tech that you need. But then after that's done, well, I guess I have to work on the other two as well. Whoops, I'm running out of land. Now I better accumulate more land and I better 
I better build more barns, and then where does it stop? So in the previous lesson, I had mentioned a gentleman who's a journalist named Johan Hari. And Johan had said that he was at Elton John's last concert in Las Vegas, and what shocked him was that pretty much half the room in that concert hall was watching Elton John through their phones, or looking at their phones. They weren't even paying attention to Elton John, who was on stage. And Hari uh, tells a story of when he met with Tim Kasser. Tim Kasser is a professor of psychology at Knox University in Illinois. And Kasser wrote a book entitled The High Price of Materialism. Kasser describes materialism as placing a high priority on a making a lot of money and having a lot of possessions. Materialism also includes wanting to have an image and wanting to be popular because having an image and being someone with a popular reputation is almost always expressed through money and possessions. Hari and, and Kasser actually talked about the sources of motivation and what drives us, uh, and they're called intrinsic and, and extrinsic values. So intrinsic values are described as the things that we do that are personally rewarding to us. For some of you, it might be cooking or painting or writing or playing a musical instrument or volunteering for a cause that you care about or, or even serving here during Sunday worship assembly. He describes extrinsic values as the values we work towards to receive a reward or to avoid punishment. This would be the artist or the writer who has to constantly produce something in order to pay the bills and to put food on the table, or the musician who has to look for gigs constantly in order to pay for the, the roof over their head, or the person working at Target or at the restaurant overtime um, because the work requires it. Modern culture emphasizes extrinsic values. Modern advertising will target a young lady and they'll tell her, you have to wear high, high heels so that your legs are longer and you have to have a fitness model's figure in order to attract those guys. Or they'll target the men in their 30s and let them know that it's okay to spend the entire weekend gaming online with your friends because you know, they're, they're in another state and it's hard to get together in person and you spend all that time at work. You should reward yourself by popping on those virtual reality goggles and gaming the entire weekend. Or they'll target a woman in her 30s and say, Oh, you've got lots of time. Work more, earn more, show those men that you can be better than them because you don't need men for anything except for making babies. Because that's all they're good for, because they're off playing video games. And you know, you can you can wait until you're you're 40 or 50 because you don't need someone. You have everything you need already. And it's already within you. All you have to do is just tap in there and let it come out. Or they'll target the middle-aged man and tell him that he needs to drive an Aston Martin because he can be like James Bond and so that he can woo a European fashion model and get married to her and that'll make him feel happy and feel so young for the rest of his life. Johan Hari calls these values that modern culture presses upon us as junk values. And that's, that's what they are. He warns that these junk values are slowly taking over and replacing our int intrinsic values, the values that, that generate positivity for the people around us, like the volunteering and the things that we do, uh, that we enjoy. And the messaging from these junk values is very simple. Buy, spend, show it off, post it for likes, make people envy you, be somebody because of what you have. 
And where does it lead for these four people? Not happiness, because looking from the outside, we know how things will end up for each of them. You know, the young lady may be a regular churchgoer, but she finds that men who she's most attracted to probably aren't because she's more concerned about her looks than she is about her character. Or the 30-year-old man-child won't even realize that he's wasted his life until he pulls off the virtual reality goggles when he hits age 50. Or the 30-ish-year-old woman who's closing in on 40 will only find emptiness a few short years later and probably weep when she comes to the realization that she's worked hard for her reputation and her money, but is too weary now to even think of starting a family. And the middle-aged man will probably find himself with a car that he can't pay off and a fashion model who doesn't want him because he can't support her lifestyle. And this brings us to our third problem that the rich man in our parable had. He didn't care or seem to care about others. So what evidence do we have that he didn't seem to care about others besides himself, other than the eyes and the mice? First off, he doesn't seem to be married or have a family, because if he had a family, he's certainly not ignoring them or he doesn't consider them to be of any significance. There's no mention of my wife, my children, my brother, my parents, my brother, my sister, my other relatives, the heirs to my inheritance. He's alone because he's storing up everything for himself. Um, Professor Kasser, in his research, he discovered, and this crosses over all national and ethnic boundaries, was that the more materialistic a person is, the less they care about the people, about the people around them and the less, the less they care about the environment around them. The more a person cares about things, the less people are relevant to them. The more materialistic a person is, people become the means to an end. Or to be more specific, the more materialistic a person is, people become things. When people become things to us, they become disposable. We possess them, we own them, we think we can do what we want with them. Then we discard them like one would an old pair of shoes. Uh, we've all been on the receiving end of that, whether it's been at work or in relationships or maybe family's done that to you and some of us have probably done it to others at some point in our lives. When we have things, like a lot of people bought exercise equipment during COVID, we, we like them for a while and then they become normal in a sense. They become a part of our everyday life. They're not special anymore. It, and it doesn't bring the same thrill or the sense of joy that it did before. Then you start craving an upgraded model because the one you have just isn't good enough for you anymore because you've lost that emotional attachment to it. Suddenly it looks different to you. The screen of your, of your phone, yeah, a year later it might seem a little dimmer and maybe it's running the apps a little slower or you know, that, there's a scratch on the driver's side door, that's yeah, not good, got to do something about a replacement, or yeah, she's got wrinkles and she's not smiling, or here he comes again, his gut's hanging over his belt and he's got that spare tire and suddenly you begin craving something new or someone new. Because that's what these junk values are really doing to us. Kasser and Hari say that from the moment we're born, we're subjected day and night to our phones, our tablets, or on TV, or on social media, or billboards, or movies. Everywhere we turn, we're exposed to these junk values and advertising to the point where they say 18-month-old children know what the McDonald's M means more than they do what their actual last name is. And even worse is that these junk values are conditioning us to neglect what's important in life. For us, it's God, it's family, it's the brothers and sisters in Christ. None of us, when we come to the end of our lives, will think about anything we bought, 
or, or the money that we earned, or the titles we achieved, um, or that we were able to attain, we'll think of family, we'll think of friends, we'll think of the times we spent with them, or didn't spend with them. Some of us may even think about how we could have used our time on earth more wisely, which leads us to our fourth and fifth problem this man had. One, he acted as if God didn't exist, and if he was aware of God, then he was a poor steward of the wealth that God gave him. So we just go one forward to this one verse here. Again, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own the things that you have prepared? So the word required in the original Greek is apaiteo, and it, it means to demand, which some of the translations of the Bible render it as, but it has the additional implication of property that is held in the hands of another, whether it's borrowed or stolen. And the demand part means to get that property back either by request or by force. So if our lives are apatieo, uh, it means that our lives are on loan to us and eventually the payment on the loan is going to come due. And there's no grace periods or past due notices or fines with God. When the loan comes due, God is going to collect. That's the reason why God calls him a fool. It's written in Psalm 14, verse 1. The spiritually ignorant fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And again, it's written in Psalm 53, verse 1. The empty-headed fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So this guy wasn't a fool because he had business sense or that he built barns to protect his investment. He was a fool because he neglected God. He neglected the creator of the earth upon which his harvest became plentiful. He neglected the bringer of the rain and the wind that nourished his crops. He neglected the God who is a source of all knowledge and creativity and ingenuity. He neglected the one who gave him life and he's forgetting about the one who decides when he takes his last breath. In short, he was a fool who was saying in his heart, there is no God. And he neglected his duty to be a good steward of what God gave him. There's no indication that he shared his wealth, that he gave to the poor, that he used his resources to care for anyone other than himself. If, he's, if he was a good steward of his money, he'd be spending money to help people, especially people he cared about. He probably didn't even have a will, which leads us to his next problem. He let comfort become an idol. Comfort is an idol if that's our focus. Uh, a lot of us focus on retirement. We work towards uh, that because we want a future where we don't have to work and can relax and enjoy the fruits of our labor, where the hardest decision is going to be which TV show we're going to watch, which pod we're going to pop in the Nespresso machine, and if it's going to be a maple old-fashioned donut or a chocolate old-fashioned donut or both. Uh, we're always focused on the here and now and not the world to come. There was a businessman named Bill Ekstrom who, act, who once said, comfort leads to stagnation. Chaos leads to growth. We focus on accumulating things because we think that those things will bring us comfort and security. Uh, and modern society tells us to buy big, so we buy big homes, and there's very few people living in that home. This scenario may f seem familiar to some. Uh, a family built, uh, buys a 3,000-square-foot uh, 3, home with a $6,000 a month mortgage, and yet who's living in it? just the husband, the wife, their daughter, and their big mastiff dog. And then you just start to fill the house with, with things until you get to the point where you feel trapped. And then you find yourself retreating to your little corner of the house until people who live with you become strangers because there's so much space between you 
and them. And when we seek comfort, aren't we compromising our faith? Because when we start hoarding things and lifestyles and routines that make us comfortable, isn't that saying, I don't trust God to provide? We often become so comfortable with life that the life that we've built around us, the job, the house, the friends, the car, the activities, that we just kind of settle into a routine. And often when something takes those things away that we find comfort in and throws everything upside down, just something like the pandemic that we went through over the last few years that prevented us from seeing our friends, our family, restricted our movement, or even took away our jobs, we either have a choice to learn and grow from that experience or come out of it different. Or when the chaos is over, we just go back to exactly the same thing that we've been doing because that's what we have control over and that's what we like. There was a time during the pandemic, and we all remember that because this church was involved in the ministry of, of just supporting its members, that where people looked out for each other. But now two years later, a lot of folks on the outside are looking out for themselves again and going back to the things that they found comfortable during the pandemic. Our spiritual growth comes about only when we deny worldly comfort and take up the cross of Christ, no matter where it leads, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. Because a life can and will change in an instant. Whatever comforts you have now will come to an end, just like the Titanic when it hit the iceberg. And consider this. The person who is self-indulgent in life and who retires to a life of self-indulgence will displease God. Because a life lived for oneself is not the life that the Lord Jesus Christ modeled for us. Jesus modeled humility, the world models pride. Jesus modeled sacrifice, the world models selfishness. Jesus modeled loving your neighbor, the world models looking down on and stepping on your neighbor. Jesus modeled a dedicated faith, the world just wants us to be virtue signalers in our faith, looking good on the outside, but not actually following Christ on the inside. Jesus also modeled rest. The world models being constantly working and always being on the go and always being connected, which brings us to his final problem. He decided to put off enjoying his life until he built all of his barns. So in Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, it's written, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun in one of its peculiar forms, there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a child nor a brother, yet there was no end to his labor. Instead, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asks, for whom do I labor and deprive myself of pleasure? This too is vanity. Yes, it is a painful effort and an unhappy task. So he was a workaholic and he let life slip past him. God has given us gifts to enjoy in addition to himself, the gift of other people, the gift of nature, the gift of good food. And the rich fool, he doesn't appear to have taken time to enjoy them before he decided to build his barns. How many couldas would he have had when his life was slipping away? I could have spent more time with my parents or siblings. I could have pursued that woman. I could have started a family. I could have made time to visit those friends. I could have traveled. I could have helped my neighbors who fell on hard times or the neighbor who lost his spouse. I could have stepped away from work to take care of a family member. Or I could have hopped on a plane to visit one of my parents who was ailing. And even if the rich person 
thought about these things, even if those things crossed his mind, he never did anything about it because he was too busy working. Which brings us to the final verse of our lesson. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So what kind of legacy are a lot of people trying to leave behind? I want to tell you a tale of, of two women. Uh, woman number one we'll call Joan, not her real name. Woman number two we'll call Inez, that is her real name. So Joan grew up in the Deep South. She started in a low-level position at an organization and had aspirations to move up. Inez was born in a small Midwestern farming community. While Joan was rising up in her organization, moving from office to office, Inez stayed in her little community, eventually met a man named James. They got married, started a family. Joan began to rise in prominence, earning accolades and getting promoted higher and higher. Meanwhile, Inez stayed a wife and mother. Joan rose even higher and higher in her organization to the point of being seventh in line to the organization's head. A lot of people were proud of her because of her accomplishments. Joan had finally become somebody. And a lot of people knew that. So Joan decided to leave that organization for another one, which meant tons more money. But that new job didn't work out for Joan, and she hunted for other jobs and eventually returned to the Deep South, um, still working, but not at the level or the title that she had before. Inez, sadly, was diagnosed with breast cancer last year, and that cancer took her life at the end of June this year. Joan was a career woman through and through, and to my knowledge, she never married because she was married to whatever work she was doing. Inez took her first and last breath in her little Amish community and dedicated herself to being a wife and mother. She had seven children, 14 grandchildren, and at her viewing, on a single afternoon, 1,200 people showed up. And at her funeral, which was on a weekday, 600 people showed up. One woman focused solely on her career, while the other woman focused on her family and her community. One laid up treasure for herself, and the other treasured her family and community. So according to the parable, and according to God's standards, which one of these women lived wisely? So what can we learn from the parable of the rich fool? First, don't envy the wealthy. Don't envy them because of the car they drive or the size of their house or the job title that they love throwing around. Don't envy the wealthy because life doesn't consist of things. Psalm 49 verses 16 through 20 tell us, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away his glory will not go down with him, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So don't envy those who are chasing after wealth and reputation and bragging rights, because 10 out of 10 of us dies. That's the reality of our situation. Second, Wealth makes people think they're self-sufficient, and if you're self-sufficient, then you don't need God. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 to 14 reminds us, Beware lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, 
lest you eat and are satisfied and build good houses and live in them, and your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold multiply, and all you have multiplies, and your heart becomes lifted up, and you forget Yahweh your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when we're self-sufficient, there will be more eyes and mys in our speech and in our actions. Third, wealth is not permanent because someone's going to get it when you're gone anyway. If it's not going to be your next of kin, it's going to be the government because you can't take it with you. Fourth, wealth and things won't protect you when God comes and says it's time for you to go. So we all, all know the metaphor of the bull in the china shop. And when God comes for us, all that we own and all that we may put between us and him will break and shatter, and all that will be left will be a lot of shattered pieces of what could have been, shattered pieces of a life that's lived foolishly. Fifth, time is the only commodity wealth can't buy back. So I, I had a conversation a few months ago with my friend Clayton, and I had actually mentioned this at another church earlier this year. Um, and it's interesting, about a month ago, that Sanjesh said the same thing to me before he decided to quit his job here in the city and go back to Fiji to take care of his ailing father. And basically, it's this. You can always find another job. You can buy back most material possessions. But the only thing you can't buy back is time. Time spent with family. Because once that's gone, it's gone. And finally, what's your legacy? So storing up treasures for yourself on Earth actually makes you poor. The rich fool only thought of himself, only thought of living in comfort and having an easy retired life, only thought of seeing to his own needs, and he thought of living an extravagant life. He didn't think about helping others, whether intentional or not, he forgot. But we live in a world of people in need. People need to hear the gospel. People have needs that need to be met, and only a, a person with a caring heart, a heart that, that is the same as as the Lord Jesus Christ, a selfless heart, can provide that type of need that a person, that a hurting person needs. 2,000 years ago, Lucius Seneca wrote, it is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more who is poor. The real wealth in the story isn't the barns and the grain and the harvest. All that glitters isn't gold, and you know, fool's gold is really bright probably brighter than, than real gold, and it's shinier, and we're always drawn to the bright, shiny object. Um, but pursuing riches and things and reputation and respect and accolades opens us up to the tyranny of things. And soon they'll own us instead of us owning them. And they'll only make us poor in the end. The real wealth, the only wealth that is worth pursuing is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Nathaniel has prepared a song for us to sing as we bring this worship assembly to a close to focus on who and what really matters. So let's stand as Nathaniel leads us in our closing song.